Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Face to Face. This is a show about change and about what's next. It's a show that wants to ask questions, peel back the layers of our average everyday experience, and go beyond scratching the surface. We interview amazing people with incredible ideas and stories who have done wild, weird, and wonderful things. Remember that imagination shared create collaboration, and collaboration creates community, and community inspires social change. I'm David Peck, and this is Face to Face. Today is Michelle Mitchell. Uh, what a delightful conversation Michelle and I had about her new film, The Uncondemned. Uh, she's a filmmaker. She's a documentarian. I would say she's a journalist. She's a lover of life. She's a very passionate person, and she's got lots to say about about justice and about her film and about genocide and about Rwanda. She's uh, won the Edward, Wor- um, Edward Murrow Award for Best Television Documentary for a film called Haiti. Uh, Where Did the Money Go, Uh, back in 2013. There's a lot going on, not only in this interview, but you need to see uh, her film that she co-directed with Nick Lavelle called the Uncondemned. It's going to be premiering or airing at least at uh, the uh, Toronto Human Rights Watch Film Festival coming up uh, in the next uh, week or so. So I I challenge you, I encourage you to get out and to see it. We talk a lot about uh, social justice, we talk about change, we talk about, you know, our responsibility to others. We also talk a little bit about clog dancing. So I hope I got your your interest, I hope I piqued your interest, and uh, you're going to, like I said, you're really going to enjoy this uh, conversation I had with Michelle. Uh, And, 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 Come on out and meet her uh, at uh, the film festival coming up. DavidPeckLive.com for more interviews. And Michelle Mitchell and the Uncondemned. Well, welcome to Face to Face. And we are joined by a very special guest today, a filmmaker, uh, here to talk about a a movie that's going to be released in a couple of weeks, I think, in Toronto, uh, called The Uncondemned. Michelle Mitchell is here. Uh, Michelle, thank you for your time today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. So we're going to be talking about your newest film, The Uncondemned, directed by you uh, and Nick Louvel, uh, your co-director, which I, I'm sure we're going to be talking a little bit more about sort of the process and how it all, all came together. But uh, first of all, I, w- I want to say congratulations right out of the gate. It's, uh, it's a difficult, compelling, um, and, and uh, challenging film. Well, I hope it was also inspiring, right? I Incredibly mean... <laughs> inspiring. You, 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 how, can, how can it not be, right? Well, you know, that was part of one of the challenges, obviously. How do you take this subject and make it 
uh, digestible, where people want to go and watch it. And so, so hopefully that's what we, we did. We, we tried to make a, a legal thriller, and uh, fingers crossed we accomplished it. Well, I have to say, you know, the, the opening, and probably, what is it, you, you can help me out here, but maybe seven or eight minutes it really did have the legal thriller feel to it. And it, I mean, just so compelling, this opening, the music, the, 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 the editing and so on, the stories. And it was, there was almost this sense of mystery about, I mean, I knew what the film was about, but there mm -hmm. was, you, you created a real, uh, big, huge question mark for me as the viewer. Oh, great. Well, I mean, again, when, you know, when you're, when you're tackling a story that happened almost 20 years ago and if, somebody wants to Google the, the case and find out how it ends, they can do that. It's like, okay, how do we make sure that we have suspense in this? So, uh, so thank you. I'm very pleased to hear that it sounds like we accomplished a, a couple of our goals. So how does a filmmaker s decide to say, I, I want, I, I mean, I find it fascinating. I continue to interview more filmmakers all the time and with the Human Rights Watch Film Festival coming up, which is in the next couple of weeks for all our listeners out there. Um, how do you decide to, to make a film about this and not that? <laughs> well, in, the type of films that, that, that we make tend to be almost investigative, um, and that's mm. usually how it starts off. And the root of that is almost always me getting mad about something. <laughs> um, <laughs> Funny. So our, first, you know, our first documentary was Haiti, Where Did the Money Go?, which aired on television. It was not a feature doc. It was a made-for-television documentary. That started because I was learning French at the time, which mm. is a terrible experience if you're <laughs> over the age of <laughs> you over the age of 15. If you're learning French and you're old, it really is not a good experience. But my teacher was from Haiti, and the earthquake happened in, in January of 2010, and she went down in March of 2010, and during our lesson said, oh, Michelle, if you could be there in those camps at night and hear the women cry, it would break your heart. Mm. And I said, well, what happened to all the money people donated to all these major charities? Wasn't there supposed to be plenty of money down there? Where did it go? And then, of course, I was like, wait, this is what I do. I track this stuff. So that came about just because I, I had the question I'm sure a lot of us had, which is what happened to the money? And then, um, and then this one, I was actually out promoting the Haiti documentary. Um, I was in... Um, I was on the west coast of the U.S., and so this is uh, 2012, and there was an election going on, and U.S. elections are always good for something. We call them, we call <laughs> them game shows up here in Canada, actually. Yeah, that's yeah. very appropriate. <laughs> one, of the, uh, one of the episodes of uh, the game show in 2012 was um, this gentleman who was running for Senate, a U.S. Senate seat from Missouri, and he said in an interview that women could not get pregnant from being raped because they had a way to shut down their body. Yeah, we, 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 we remember this. <laughs> remember that one? We yeah, do, I almost, yeah. I almost drove off the road, and I thought, okay, <laughs> oh, well, the, the Serbs didn't get that memo. <laughs> That's know? right. What are you talking about? And so I decided, like, you know what? I need to, uh, I'm, I'm going to do something about this. I am going to tell a story that puts this act so firmly into where it should be, which is an act of power, torture, and humiliation, that you will never be able to get away with saying something like that again. And then I thought, okay, well, I don't want to depress myself for the next three years, right? That's how long a film it takes at least. Um, I want to tell a story about what to do about it. And so um, it became, okay, I, let's, let's tell the story of the first time that rape was prosecuted as a crime of war. And I honestly thought it was going to be a very famous case called um, 
called the, the Foce case from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. And this was okay. a case that had a lot of inform- a lot of articles, a lot of coverage. Um, this it was you know these women in Bosnia who were held in effectively in uh, rape camps is what they called them and raped repeatedly. Um, and it was a very famous case that went through the Hague. So I actually spent about six months researching that in Bosnia Herzegovina, and I happened to be um, at a screening for the Haiti documentary in Bellingham, Washington, at the Pickford Theater, and I was having a glass of wine with a human rights lawyer. He said, what are you going to do next? And I said, I'm going to do a film about the first time rape was prosecuted as a crime of war. And she says, oh, okay, too. And I was like, what is that? Hmm. I never heard this. Hmm. He says, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. And I was like, what? <laughs> when did that happen? And then she said, you need to talk to Pierre Prosper. I'm like, who's Pierre Prosper? And she's like, oh, he's Haitian-American. You'll love him. I'm like, oh, great, another Haiti <laughs> angle here. So um, so then I, I talked to Pierre maybe three days later, and that was January of 2013. And, and I remember getting off the phone, and I turned to Nick, who um, was finishing up something, and he was really looking forward to getting back to, uh, to narrative filmmaking. Um, and I said, I think you might want to stick around. I think this is going to be pretty good. So that's how it happened. It really is remarkable, eh, that when you look back, the chain of events, the little things that, you know, I mean, one of the messages I've, I go on about all the time is, you know, incremental change and little things making a big difference. And I think that definitely for me is one of the inspirational things to take from your film as well. You know, remarkable how, how one or two testimonies, more than one or two in this case, made, made such a significant difference and will continue to for, well, forever really, right, from a justice perspective and a legal perspective. But isn't it remarkable how those little little meetings, you know, that somebody said something oh. to you and you said, what? Tell me more. And, and yeah, out of that comes this film. It's, ah, I love that stuff. Exactly. It, it, that's, and, and one of the crazier things that came about of, of little tiny moments that you're referring to um, is the Lisa Pruitt. Uh, mm. part of the, the narrative in this film. And Lisa Pruitt is the... Uh, the, the lawyer who was sent to do that special report about whether or not there was right. enough um, sexual violence charge John Palakaisi with rape as a crime of war, and that was um, that was a, an element of the story that nobody knew about. And the only reason why um, that came about was I was mistakenly given her report, um, and <laughs> I wasn't even supposed to have it. Wow! And then while I was reading it, I had already been to Rwanda and I had already met. Witness JJ and 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 OO. I'd met them on my own, and I knew their real names. And so I'm reading her report, and I um, at at a bar, <laughs> drinking a glass of wine, and I remember spitting out my glass of wine. I spitting out the wine because there was a name on there that I was witness JJ's name, and I was like, "Holy cow! Are you kidding me?" It was like like I rubbed my eyes for a second. I couldn't believe what I was looking at, and I was like, "What is this document? Who is this person?" And then, of course, you know, I hunted her down, and and you and you know, because you've seen this, you know, you know um, exactly how aware she was of the role that she played. Um, so that was it was pretty incredible. That the, that combination, that one two combination, two that was I think two of the best yeah, that's days amazing. of uh, my career. Mm-hmm. But before we jump into the more about the film. Have you always been like this? Like, I mean, I, you know, I've studied philosophy for years, you know, uh, Neo in the Matrix. It was the question that drove him. Um, is it, is, is, is it, 
is it that mystery? Is it that unknown? Is it, you know, you, you know, you said, you know, I got to get mad about something before I really go in. <laughs> is, is that since you've been young, you've had that sort of sense and spirit? Well, um, apparently yes. <laughs> I, although I didn't think so. I mean, I, what I wanted to do with my life was be the great American novelist and you can see how close I came. Come on. You um, really wanted to join the, you really wanted to join the circus. I've, I've read, I've I, read the bio. <laughs> you know, give people any ideas. I had a friend hack into my Wikipedia page once and say that I was a champion clog dancer, and I <laughs> read my Wikipedia ever, and so I didn't understand why I was getting all these invitations to clog dancing. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I don't want to give your audience any ideas. But, uh, Will you be doing that at the Q&A for the Human Rights Watch Film Festival uh, coming up yes, in Toronto? Yeah. You know what? It's totally awesome to do at a, at a, at a screening of a film about justice and uh, yeah. international war crimes is clog dancing. Bring your clog Logs. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, I, I um, at a fairly young age, I grew up in Southern California, uh-huh. and so at a pretty young age, my parents, who are lovely but not imaginative people, took my sister and I traveling. Um, and one of the times, one of the big trips we we took um, was to the Eastern Mediterranean, and we went to Turkey, Cyprus, Israel, and Egypt. And this was in the early '80s, so it was very, very exotic to go all the way from Southern California there. And um, but one of the things that was happening at that time in Israel was the beginning of the first intifada, and I was caught actually in a, a crossfire. We, mm. I don't know if you got called a crossfire. I mean, there was there was there was a soldier firing at a man who was running, and I got sort of pulled into a, a bread shop and um, put on the ground. And I, I was like, "What is what's I was really young. I was like 13 years old, and wow. I said, "What what's happening?" And the, I'll never forget it. The guy, the the guy in the store said, um, uh, "Some someone has been bad." And I'm like, "Someone has been bad? What do you mean? Someone mm. has been bad? What does that mean?" And that was the first. That was the first step, actually, as the most essential part of journalism. Why is that guy shooting at that guy? And and I was really caught up in this idea of what makes somebody want to put their life on the line mm. for a cause, mm. and um, and why do people do these things to each other? Why? 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 And um, then you start peeling through that, and you find these stories. I also, by the way, I have to say that if you're as lucky as I have been in the sense of, you know, I'm, I was born in the United States. I lived an upper-middle-class life. I had a great education. With that comes responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't waste that. You have, to take that. you have to take those enormous benefits that you have been given through the grace of fate, and you have to do something positive with it. It's a nice, nice phrase, the grace of fate. Yeah, it's really good. It's interesting, you know, for me, and I I wouldn't mind coming back to this. I mean, I mean, it sounds like you're more alone than not. I mean, you know, I don't know that everyone feels that same burden of responsibility that comes out of, you know what I mean? Like at the risk of sounding a little critical and judgmental of others. You know, I don't know if if it's even, um, I don't look at it even as a burden. I mean, this is what makes you get up in the morning, and um, and it's it's a it's a really but it's a great feeling when you realize that you've done something to um, make positive change in the world. Uh, it's fantastic. It's yeah, it, when yeah. when people walk up to me and say, "Hey, you know, I I saw your story about, or I I watched your film, and now I'm doing this." You, that's great. That's why we're in this. And those, you know, those, that's why those women gave the interviews that they do mm. in, in this mm-hmm. film, because they said we want to help people. 
which is great. You well, know, it's, incre- it's incredible. Good, yeah. Yeah, it really is. So I've been, I've, I've spent some time in, in Rwanda. I was in Kigali, uh, got to travel around the country a little bit, uh, did some, did some work. So I got, uh, you know, I, I got quite a bit of history immersed, uh, read Dallaire, shake hands with the devil. I've seen many documentary mm-hmm. films and so on. So I have a pretty good understanding and, and I knew what your film was about uh, going in, but I didn't really know, you know, what to expect, obviously. And, and I think one of the things that struck me when I was there, okay, now I'm going to just sound a little weird, but there was a comment in the film where somebody said evil was at 80%, but goodness was at about 20% during mm-hmm. that 1994, that, that mm-hmm. war, you want to call it a civil war, that's fine, but there was also this you know, massive genocide going on, almost a million people who die in 100 days, just remarkable, the precision and the, the calculation behind it all. I felt when I was there like, something was still very not right. That's really great mm-hmm. saying. My wife wouldn't be too pleased with me. But um, there was just something very unsettling about, and, and I heard it from others, and it was partially the security that you would see for places that you would go, and of course the memorials and, and so on. Did you get that same sense as you well, started I, to... Well, I will you know? tell you, it's interesting to be in a place that is basically 20 years, which is not a lot of time. It's not a lot of time. An era, and it, I'm going to actually go back to something that you just said, which was um, this tendency that some people have to call what happened a civil war. That that's no civil war. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's there's pushback. All the, all those voices that you heard in the beginning um, montage and that opening montage, and the our journalists and photographers who covered both Bosnia and Rwanda. Right. And it was important to me that their voices were in it because. Um, I call them the class of 93. Nobody else does, so don't get attached to it. Um, but I call them the class of 93 <laughs> because these men and women change war reporting. Um, this is the mm. first time that you actually had uh, sexual violence being covered. Because right. before it really wasn't. And those people, the, the, the gentleman who said the phrase that you, you picked up on is uh, a very famous uh, photojournalist named Gilles Perez. And Gilles, um, Gilles gave the interview and, and others gave the interview because they wanted to push back on this revisionism that's happening. Right. It happens every 20 years, right? Um, but the, I, 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 don't, I don't know how a country comes back from something so terrible. And I hope that there are lots of studies going on by academics and smarter people than me, um, you know, in Rwanda and in Cambodia um, and in other places that have seen enormous violence and, and the evidence of that enormous violence is is so vivid and mm, um i will is, yeah. i'm very open about the fact that um being seeing the the the, the seeing the remnants of that great violence um and then i i, I talked to plenty of folks in rwanda and also i went over into congo um but it's definitely uh, you can't you absorb some of that trauma it's just enormous trauma and it's going to take a long time to recover it's. Um, I, I want to come back to this too. Maybe we can wrap up the interview. But but you went over to the Congo, and I'm I'm guessing that was to interview the FDLR. Yes. 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 And, and that really end. Popping, so yeah. without tipping your hat or or, or the film's hat, uh, the end scene is just it's just remarkable. They're not very happy with. <laughs> they that, are you know, none I, too we, pleased. <laughs> We we do have we were told that it's not safe for us to be in Eastern Congo anytime soon, which is fine by me. Um, I don't need to go back to Eastern Congo, but uh, but yeah, I, uh, that was they hadn't given an on camera interview in a very long time. Um, they hadn't talked to an American journalist in a very long time, and I I'm, I apologize to my 
my brethren out there because I'm not sure how quickly they're going to give another interview. Did you get um, after this? Did you get much out of them? Yeah, well, I mean, well, it, we, it was a pretty extensive interview, and then we had to stay overnight in that village. Oh, wow. A three and a half days to get there, and then the, uh, there was a huge downpour, and the road got washed out. So we were overnight with them. Um, there's, um, there's some photographs, actually, of, uh, <laughs> of how, where and how we stayed on our website. But um, it was a long interview, and most of it was talking about how misunderstood they were. Right. And I, I have to say, at one point, I, I asked them, what do you think is the biggest misconception about you? And uh, the answer was, well, you probably think we're going to kill you. Oh, wow. Like, oh, wow. And then I said, well, I don't, but Nick does. <laughs> like, just sitting behind me, <laughs> the camera running, he's like, thanks. <laughs> oh, man. You do have to maintain a little bit of a sense of humor in some of these situations, it seems oh, to me. Oh, man. You know what? That, that, that beer tasted really good when we got out of there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I bet. I bet. Yeah, I've, sp- I've spent a little bit of time up on that border, actually, so I know whereof you speak. It's, uh, um, yeah, and I think people need to see the film just for that last scene, actually. I mean, <laughs> that's worth the price of admission for sure. So you know, they're, they're, yeah, they're, it was it wasn't particularly when we're trying to figure out how to use it. I, I knew exactly what I mean. I remember when that moment happened, and I was like, "Okay, this is absolutely worth every uh, everything that, that that went into this moment." I mean, three three and a half weeks in uh, in Congo for that those, those, that for that moment. Wow, is that right? <laughs> eh? Wow, that's a yeah. long yeah. No, but it, honestly though, that is that's the moment you could show to a law class, to an international. I teach international development and, and, at Humber College here in Toronto, and always looking for clips to show students. I mean, if that's not sort of the the the, the thesis statement and the conclusion, I don't know what is. You know, it's just <laughs> brilliant, and it just encapsulates it in such a small moment. Hopefully, we've uh, piqued some people's interest. So, so, so the church knew, the Americans knew. Everyone knew what was going on. What the hell happened? Well, um, if you want to watch something in real time, it's similar. Look at what's happening in South Sudan. Everybody mm. knows what's happening there. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's. Um, I think it's uh, the fact that so many people knew. The fact that there were memos and, and um, faxes and all sorts of things on multiple levels that were sent by officials who were in those embassies and et cetera, et cetera, it just, it's mind-boggling. It, it, and I was mentioning to you before we started that I, my first job was on Capitol Hill, and I remember being on Capitol Hill as a young staffer when the first footage started coming right, in. Right, right. And there was, there were staffers just kind of stumbling out into the hallways going, did you just see what's on television? And we were all very upset, and our bosses were also upset. And it's a, it's, it's this isn't just me telling this story. This is actually in uh, Samantha Power's book, The Problem from Hell. But there was a bipartisan uh, coalition of representatives and senators who went to the White House saying, what can we do? We want to do something. And the White House said, Bill Clinton said, nothing. It's a tribal issue. So, you know, when people talk about what a great job Bill Clinton did then or, you know, uh, or, or sorry, what a great job he's done to make amends, the fact that he's been so open about how it was the biggest mistake of his presidency. Um, I, I, it, it, it makes me feel very queasy because mm. there was political will to do something, and that will wasn't tapped. And that's also sort of what we're hoping to do with, with the film. It's just like, look, you know what, let's get the political will together, and then let's go out and force our leaders to do something, to take responsibility and to push for uh, no impunity. 
I was talking with Dane Pratsky a couple of days ago, uh, yesterday actually, about his film Frackman, which is also being uh, uh, highlighted at the festival coming up in, in, in a few days. And it's all about activism and, and kind of the ground up swell. And he's now going to be running for local office. He's a crazy nut, good guy, you'd love him. But it's all about him and, and this community around him saying, we're not going to take this. We're going to actually try to change the way things are going to be done tomorrow. And I think that's what's so brilliant to me about these women in this film. They're so unbelievably brave to come out, to speak out against this. And, and what, you know, what boggled my mind about seeing them is, is just how, um, delightful and lovely they all seem, you know, during your interviews and, and yet they're talking in between these beautiful smiles. They're talking about these deep, deep wounds that, that, that are, that are clearly healing on some level, but there's, there's some sort of trauma clearly that's, you know, kind of below the surface. Um, but, but again, encouraged and affirmed that, you know, you can make a difference. You, you can fight back against this kind of evil. Yeah, and they, they were, you know, they, they're, if you want to call them the lucky ones, they, they had their day in court, right? And then, and then they, um, they made history. Um, but it was interesting because they were certainly never expecting to have a film made about them. Right. They actually said, we thought the world had forgotten about us until, until you guys showed up. And which I always thought was really interesting um, because they were very ready to talk and share their stories. But also, I, in the interviews with them, I met them a couple times before. But I never asked them, tell me what happened to you. I mean, I know what happened mm, to them. Mm. Um, the first question I asked was, why did you decide to testify? Right. Which is a much more interesting, well, I think, a much more interesting question. And at no point are you told what happened to them. I mean, you know that something happened because otherwise they wouldn't be called as witnesses. But, um, and I've been asked before, you know, how come you didn't include or what happened, you know, the, the details of what they went through. And I said, because... I someday was going to be sitting next to them right. watching the film. Right. And I, all I could think of was I wouldn't want that information about myself out there. That's not what I want the world to know. I would want the world to know what to do about it. And just a very different way to start approaching this because, you know, they, they take, um, you know, they're very clear on what people need to do to speak up. And that includes people who this has happened to at any level. Talk about it. Talk about it. There's no embarrassment, no shame. Talk about it because you're going to be okay. And you know what? You actually just might get some justice. You know, you sort of, you sort of, I mean, to me, you kind of start the film out in a way. You talk right out of the gate. It's about, you know, some, the, 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 the silence. You know, you mm -hmm. talk about the silence and the silence in the country. You, you've got the church knew, the Americans knew, you know, everybody knew, but let's not talk about it. Let's not actually call it genocide because if we do that, we're going to, what are the implications? And, and, yeah. and, and so on. And then you've got one of the, one of the Rwandan women later in the film saying, you know, our bot, normally we don't talk about our bodies. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of Rwandan sort of cultural things that go on. And well, I would say that's pretty much everybody. That's kind of mm -hmm. global. And yet there was a sense where, you know, as a father and so on, and as a teacher, you go, guys, we, we got to talk about this stuff for the love. It's a part of what makes us, I don't know, wonderfully human. Is that, mm -hmm. does that sound corny? I mean, you no. know, let's get it out. Let's for the love, let's get it out on the table and maybe we can address some of this stuff so that it's not going to happen again tomorrow in, in, in a different way or, or, or at least we're going to be able to approach these things in a different way. 
Well, we have to, um, and we have to because there are so many, you know, it just it lays the room of every facet of our society and our being. Um, one of the things that I talk a lot about, um, I, I did a TEDx talk on this, uh, is we don't use the right words. Mm-hmm. Um, an example, I would say, um, even beyond war. Oh, let, let's, let's talk about how it's, it, how it's discussed in conflict. Um, I just received, for example, an email uh, three days ago from someone who said, oh, my God, I just was reading this article about these terrible things that happened with rape and conflict, and I had no idea that rape and conflict meant that women were gang raped and that men were raped. I was like, well, what do you think it is? I mean, you know, I mean, we're not using the right words. You know, right. one of those words is torture. Right. One of those words is, you know, power. But it, it really is torture. And we, because we're not talking about it correctly, and it's right now what's happening even with what ISIS is perpetrating. And... Uh, South Sudan and Boko Haram, um, and I have seen this in documents, it's being referred to as a soft issue, even at the upper echelons of multiple governments that, wow. per, that, that usually say that this is, a, this is a big issue for them. The fact is, is that, it's, you know, it's, it's been pushed to the side. It's, you know, a hard issue is a beheading or somebody being burned alive or any of these other terrible, terrible things that happen in the course of war. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I would say I'm not going to get in a debate on the misery index. All of those things sound really horrible. They all sound like torture. And we have to start talking about this um, for what it is. And it has to be taken as seriously as any other crime of war. And a full stop. And so, everything else, you know, to, to say that it's not as destructive as poison gas or any of these other things is, quite frankly, not true. There's a there's a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist that's uh, interviewed and 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 it's certainly a theme and a thread throughout this notion that this is not about sex this is about as you say it's about torture it's about power it's about humiliation it's entitlement it's it's ideology is and well and it's fear right and and it's about the fear it's about uh, what was the line something about submission I think mm-hmm. right it's about how it's about it's about power torture. Um, entitlement, yeah, and it's about and, and destruction. It's about trying to. It's about the attempt to destroy somebody. Well, and, and and to get others around that are watching, that are hearing about this, to mm-hmm. submit, basically, mm-hmm. to bow to bow yes. down to the powers that be, whoever they they are at the time. Yes, because a lot of times these are done in public. Yeah, exactly. And and for one of the things we we don't talk about in the film because it was just it was. You know, once you, you, there are so many different ways you can go with the story, and you have to keep things. I mean, this is already a complicated enough story because of all the twists and turns that it took legally. It introduced a new, um, a new facet to the issue, where it was too difficult. But let's just talk for a second about how many men are raped. And mm-hmm. when I was in Congo, the, the figure that was cited to me was um, at least 30% of all the rape victims in Congo are men. Wow. And those are the ones we know about. Wow. So it's probably higher. And, but if you think it's hard for women to talk about, it's really hard for men to talk about. Yeah. And then I've heard a whole host of other crazy responses. I've had people go, well, what, really? I mean, are these gay men raping? I'm like, no, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not an act of sex. Yeah. <laughs> this is an act of like, I mean, and, and, and rape can take, pen, the penetration can take all, you know, can happen in varying ways. You know, I, our, our, we don't have to be too imaginative to think about what exactly. those ways might be. But the thing is, is that um, it's, you know, even in that case, we're not talking about this correctly. And for those men, and I, there are all sorts of terrible stories about these guys who, the ones who um, are do um, 
tell medical professionals that this has happened to them. Sometimes they can't be treated because the mission of that particular NGO doesn't allow to treat men, and so they can't. I mean, there's just all sorts. Of, and so because we're not talking about this correctly, these NGOs are not allowed, are not able to serve uh, their uh, that population correctly. There's all sorts of um, all sorts of results of this, uh, consequences rather, to to just you know, not talking about this. So you clearly have done a ton of research around this issue, this this crime against humanity, this violence and so on. It's it's not about sex, it's about power and so on. Seems to be some, I would imagine, some common threads throughout the different places around the world. This has happened over, you know, what is it, civil, I mean, how, how long have we been writing history? A couple thousand years. Um, but I heard somebody in the film say that some of the testimonies from Rwanda were some of the most brutal ones that they had ever heard. Would would you agree with that? And if if so, what any any thoughts on that? Like, what, you know, I mean, one of the mind-boggling things for me when I came out of Rwanda was at, at what such a how how it was such a Catholic country mm-hmm. at, at one time. <laughs> but the Catholic right? Church does such a good job dealing with uh, sex crimes. Um, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yes. The history is not great, is it? Yeah. Well, even like the recent experience. Like understatement. The understatement yeah. of the century. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the uh, I, I certainly found that the the, the, the testimonies that I read, um, the accounts, and there, there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot of papers out there where people dig you know get on the ground fairly quickly and do things like Benifer Nowoji, who's working for Human Rights Watch at the time when she did her report, and um, and they are really tough to read. They're real. I. I um, I wouldn't recommend that as bedtime reading. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to have some nightmares. But um, one of the things that happened in Rwanda was this uh, demonization that the media did of um, an exaggeration of uh, the sexuality of Tutsi women. Hmm. And it was a lot of um, making them sound like they were um, like these sexually voracious uh, she-devils, so to speak. Hmm. And hmm. That, um, and it was it was constant. It was like you know there were there were cartoons. It was on the radio. This sense of making them the other, you know, yeah. that they needed to be uh, destroyed and destroyed sexually because that was their power they were wielding, and um, and so that's that's one reason why um, it's a big reason why, according to again people who are smarter than me, that you saw such viciousness in. Um, in the, the sexual attacks that happened, um, they, you know, there were some, there were some, I mean, there are, there are two stories which are in the film. There are two moments, as, as you know, um, and then that's it. But, um, but those are, those, those are particularly terrible. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know how much, uh, it, you know, most people, we don't want to know that these things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it was, it's really, it, because you want, we don't want to think we're capable of that, right? Well, but, you know, I, <laughs> Maybe this is a nice little segue into I mean, a couple things. One, I'd love to hear your thoughts more on this, <clears throat> you know, having spent so much time there and reflecting on it and so on, and maybe going to go on to do more more film or writing. 80% evil, 20% good, you know. Mm. Um, wow, I'd like to think that stat's a little high. I'd like to see, think there's not, you know, maybe this, you know, that person was talking specifically about Rwanda. He but, was. He but, was. He was. Co- he was comparing it to Bosnia. He's there you go. Not a Bosnia. I thought that you know the evil of mankind was fifty-fifty when I came out of Rwanda. Evil was at twenty percent, and the good was at. Sorry, evil was at eighty percent, and good was at twenty. So, so you know, and just to follow from your comment, we don't want to think about it because maybe we're capable. Of, and I think you're right. 
aren't we uh, aren't we all culpable on some level or, or cap- capable and culpable i suppose you could say in, in a way i think that if you it's if a it, tough question believe me i get yeah. it it's that we're talking about the problem of evil here and and it's something that i just you know having spent so much time in cambodia reflecting reading and yeah. working there how you know? I'm re- currently reading a book by Alex Hinton called "Why Did They Kill?" and coming to terms with these sort of you know your comment earlier about the generalizations that are made in these kinds of things and 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 there's always a we want to explain it away. Oh well, the country was demonized, you know, possessed. I've heard people say they were mm-hmm. possessed. I've heard you know, uh, or or Hitler was a madman. Well, actually, I don't think he was. You know. Well, you know, that's why the story of Akeyesu himself is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Here you have a guy who is a moderate, right? He starts out as a moderate Hutu. He's the mayor of a small He's town. He's the mayor of a small town. The, yeah, and for the first two weeks of the genocide, he prevents it from coming into his town. Like, he's standing out in the road with a gun, preventing the inter-Rahamwe militias from coming in and killing Tutsis. But then he's called to a political meeting, and he is told, you want to have a political future, you need to get with the program. Right. And he comes back, and that night the genocide starts. Yeah, and so for me, what was so fascinating about this is he could have gone either way. You know, genocide doesn't happen. Uh, mass killings don't happen. Mass torture doesn't happen um, because you've got one evil genius at the top. You know? Right, it, right. Because you have a lot of passive people in the middle who don't say no and, and who don't push back. And... You know, and that's why, that's what makes Akeyesu, I think, in a way, so relatable um, and scary. And scary, too, yeah. It could be be anybody. Well, this is the thing that, I mean, sometimes does, in fact, keep me up at night, some of these kinds of things, because I think it's easy for us, especially in the West, to say, to point the finger and, and say, oh, look at those crazy nuts and what they're doing, you know, over there. I love the way we demonize well, you people. You could say that right? about the Republican presidential field. I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, we were just this morning. So, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah, no, for sure. Well, I think that's my point, right? I mean, we're, I, I really do believe we're all in this uh, for good or for ill together. You know, and I think that's what fascinates me so much about this. And when these types of things seem to continue to happen, like you said about the Sudan around the world, you know, when the heck are we going to learn? Right? Well, you know? I, the thing is that we have mechanisms to, 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 to at least hold people accountable, and we don't pursue those mechanisms nearly as much as we should. And um, and we have the ability to, to do that. It's going to take us pressuring uh, our leaders and, telling, and, and being very clear what we find to be um, an unacceptable course of action, which is, I'm not saying like we, we parachute in and we try to solve all these problems because that's, that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And also, we're not going to stop rape from happening it's, in conflict. It's just too effective of a, a, a mechanism in war, okay? But what we can do is make it a lot more difficult to get away with. And that scares people. I mean, the FDLR gave us that interview because they are very worried about being indicted by right. the ICC. Right, you know? And so it's possible to um, have some some. some stoppage point, you know, where we go, no, that's not acceptable. It's just like the journalist who I was mentioning earlier in this conversation who, 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 who speak in that montage, who are pushing back at people who want to say that wasn't a genocide. Like, yeah, that was. I was there. I saw it. You don't get to rewrite this. And in fact, one of the journalists says that he did that job because he, if world leaders didn't want to, wanted to say that they didn't know what was happening, that 
that these guys could say, oh, no, you knew what was happening because we told you. Right. So we just have to keep up that kind of pressure. And and I think one of the great things about working on this particular film is that as dark of a place as uh, I had to go in order to begin to tell it, um, oh, my God, the amazing, incredible people around the world who are doing really cool things. Yeah, And I'm true. not talking um, in... I'm not talking, I'm not, I'll start with those women who are who are on on camera in this film, but in lots and lots of places, and you can, because of social media, you have we have so much more access to all these folks. Um, but there are so many wonderful things going on, and so many really cool people out there fighting the good fight. That I have to tell you, like my faith in humanity and our ability to do the right thing is is totally intact. So that's it's awesome. So you yeah. so <laughs> awesome for so many reasons, and one because you already you answered the question I was going to kind of wrap us up with. I always, especially when you know talking about such a somber and, and difficult issue and topic as as Rwanda and rape and so on and, and genocide. Holy cow! You couldn't get much more somber. Are you know? Are you still hopeful? So <laughs> it sure oh, yeah. sounds like you are. That's pretty cool. Hey, uh, speaking of hope, so uh, in the title, are you? Is that the UN? Is that tongue in cheek? The uncondemned. <laughs> well, we it's it's not tongue in cheek. Um, you know, we it's a made up word. Um, <laughs> yeah. It does not exist. So and that came about because we had to we had to call it something. Um, well, uh, hey, just so you know, I've added it to my Apple dictionary. So oh, it's, cool! It's, so it's, it's, it's becoming official. It's now a real word on my uh, on my laptop. So. I love it. I love it. <laughs> we we came up with it on on a subway ride. We were, um, Nick and I were leaving the office. We've been working really really late. I think it was like one o'clock in the morning, and we're talking about what we should call this and. We're like, well, you know, the these women were condemned, but the men weren't as a result of the, the act of being raped in conflict, and the men thought that they were going to get away with it. But then the women became, uh, you know, but then the men became condemned, and then the women became, and then Nick said uncondemned. And that's and we were so tired, and we were like, hee, 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 wait, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> so, so that's how um, that's how we came up with that title. Where do you where do you sit? Uh, and we're probably going to have to wrap it up here in a minute. Clearly, we're going to have to do a second part. What um, uh, what are your thoughts on the UN? So many so many people are negative towards the UN and and the work that they do. And I think often, you know, and I've said this before on 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 uh, my, some of my interviews. When people talk about the UN, they usually talk about the Security Council. What what do you think about the? I mean, you've worked you worked on this film in Haiti. I mean, you, clearly you've traveled the world. Are you are you hopeful there? I mean, is this is this something that is actually effective some of the time? Well, I, I've I've seen a lot of different types of missions that the mm -hmm. UN run. Mm -hmm. there, there's obviously MINUSCO in, in Congo, and I've seen their uh, their operation in Haiti, um, which I have many many concerns about. Um, the UN is a vast entity, and I think what has surprised me is just you know, how big it is and how little all those different divisions actually talk to each other. Right. But I think overall um, that having the UN around is, um, is so much, is so, it's, excuse me one second. You guys, um, you're going to have to edit that part out. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. Um, but uh, the, I think, I think the, having the UN is so much better than not yeah. having something Good. there. And Good. because at least there's yeah. an entity to hold some, folks accountable yeah. for the terrible things that can and do happen. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I, I, I 
I couldn't agree more. I mean, clearly it's broken, but it's it's such a massive mechanism. I mean, how do you how do you, I think uh, hopefully the, the idea is to get it working a little more smoothly, uh, more and more all the time. It seems to me. So so. Um, <laughs> oh, listen, you're very hopeful, man. You're oh, I'm a hopeful cynic many, to the many core. Things that the UN can and will do well, but it's... smoothly. I wouldn't be that word necessarily. <laughs> I, it, look, it's an almost impossible task. I think yeah, no, right? I, th- so, I think you're so right. I think what they do, they do as well as they could, and we and when and when the UN screws up, um, you know, we ha- the mechanism has to be in place for them to be held um, and hold themselves accountable. So tell me a little bit. You're coming to Toronto. I hear you've never been out of the Toronto airport. Uh, the film <laughs> is um, the film is going to be uh, released. I'm just double checking again on on the, the the timing, but it's it's like in a week or two, April 5th, I think. April um, 5th, exactly. Yeah. Um, so 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 tell me what's happening on opening night. Well, um, I will be there doing a, a Q&A, but also Sarah Darshori, who is one of the, uh, she's the co-counsel in the, in the case at the uh, age of 27. She was the co-counsel for this enormous history-changing trial. And uh, now she actually works for Human Rights Watch and continues some of her work. So she'll be there doing the Q&A with me. And, and a little bit of a clog dance as well, I understand? Uh, yeah, we're, yeah, we're going to have a little clog dance. Excellent. Glad to hear it. <laughs> So Tuesday, April 5th, 6.30 p.m., make sure you get your tickets. Michelle Mitchell here today on Face to Face. Thanks a lot, Michelle. Holy smokes. I really, honestly, I'm a, a, a part, I often say we got to do part two, but I feel like we've just, I mean, barely scratched the surface on this. Thanks such for uh, so much for a brilliant film. Well, thank you. And I see that now you have another reason to come to the screening, right? Yeah, we um, can continue our conversation. <laughs> and I'm heading out to South Oakville to see if I can find myself a pair of clogs. There you go. There you go. Oh, my God. Someone is going to, like, click on and, like, edit my Wikipedia. I'm going to keep an eye on it. You should. Thanks for going to do that. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time today, Michelle. Thank you.